Today's episode is funded in part by a brand new sponsor. I want to introduce you all today to a new athletic clothing line called Four Athletics. Four Athletics is a brand new clothing line that was started up by four brothers. Matt, Ben, Cody, and Casey are listeners of this show, and they love what we're doing here, and they're doing something very similar. They use a crowdfunding model to provide amazingly high-quality athletic apparel for literally a fraction of what you'd spend on similar apparel by brands like Lululemon. When Ben got a hold of me and he was interested in helping sponsor the show, he sent Becky and I samples of some of their apparel, and we have been living in this stuff for the last week. The material is awesome, the fit is incredible, and the price point is ridiculously low. I'm going to tell you more about 4Athletics on the break, but for now I'll tell you, you need to go to 4Athletics.com and check out their clothing line. And if you order in the next two weeks and use my promo code TRUTH, they're giving Truth and Justice listeners 15% off of their already incredibly low prices. These clothes are no joke, people. They're honestly the highest quality athletic clothing that I have ever worn. And because of their crowdfunding model, they're able to offer this clothing at a low, low price. So go to 4 Athletics, that's F-O-U-R, athletics.com, and use my promo code TRUTH for 15% off of your order for the next two weeks. This offer expires on July 17th, so make sure you get your orders in today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank you all for giving me a week to take a break and go on vacation with my wife. We had a wonderful time out in South Dakota and Colorado. Becky's never been in the mountains, and we got to see the Badlands, Mount Rushmore, Crazy Horse, Custer State Park, Rocky Mountain National Park. We spent a couple days in the Hot Springs and Steamboat Springs, Colorado. It was a wonderful vacation, and I was really able to do that because all of you were patient enough to give me a week off. But now I'm feeling rested, refreshed, and I'm ready to dig back into the Edward Aids case. I've spent this entire week digging through documents, and the further I dig into this, the more this puzzle is starting to come together. The further I dig into this case, the more clear it becomes that Edward Aids' life has been snatched away from him because of lazy police work, followed up with a corrupt prosecutor's office. I'm finding lead after lead after lead that are leading me in every direction other than Edward Aids. These are leads that Detective Hugel and Detective Waller should have followed back in 1993. But all of these leads were ignored. And as we hear at the end of this episode, once this case got into the prosecutor's office, I believe that the leads were more than just ignored. But we'll start off with some of the detectives' work. As you all know from listening to this show for the last several months, Smith County loves to hang their hat on the fact that they have an extremely high conviction rate. And we've seen their MO, that if they can find a suspect that's poor or black or both, they go after that suspect in full force. We've seen it happen to Carrie Max Cook, Kenny Snow, the Andrew Mitchell case that I discussed briefly a couple months ago, and it is painfully obvious that this is what happened in the case of Elnora Griffin's murder. When merely minutes into the investigation, they received a statement from Kubia Jackson, who said that on the night of the murder, she had called Elnora Griffin, and Elnora told her that she was sitting here talking to Edward. 
That right there is where the blinders were put on and any chance at a real investigation was lost. Kubia Jackson is the place where the Smith County Sheriff's Department began their investigation. So that's where we're going to begin today's episode. Earlier this week, I was finally able to track down Kubia Jackson and get her on the phone. I couldn't believe it when she finally answered. I've been wanting to talk to Kubia for months. Her testimony that Elnora had told her that she was talking to Edward on the night of the murder is the most confusing part about this entire case. Nothing on that crime scene, and I mean nothing, indicates that Edward Aids was in that trailer that night, much less killed Elnora Griffin. Out of all of the fingerprints that were collected and tested in that trailer, none of them came back to Edward Aids. None of the fingerprints in the car, the dining room table, the telephone, none of them. And these things hadn't been wiped down. There were fingerprints on them. They just didn't belong to Edward. And I've had listeners email me and ask, well, could the person that killed her have been wearing gloves? And the answer is, I don't know. Maybe they could have been wearing gloves. But if we're looking at the state's theory that Edward H. is the one that committed the murder, when Kubia called, Kubia testifies that Elnora sounded calm, she was fine, she didn't seem like anything was wrong. She was just, quote, sitting there talking to Edward. This was a July evening in Texas. The high that day was 98 degrees, and at 10 o'clock at night, it was still 90 degrees. So I think Elnora might have been a little suspicious if she was sitting having a conversation with Edward and he was wearing gloves. And remember, in order for the state's theory to work, this conversation would have had to lead to a sexual encounter where it appears that Elnora willingly took off her clothes. And again, you'd have to consider the fact that would the person that was having sex with her, that began with a conversation that led to sex, be wearing gloves during that time? So I'm discarding the theory that the killer, especially if the theory is that the killer is Edward, that they were wearing gloves during the murder. So there are no fingerprints of Edwards in the house. No fingerprints of his on the body. No fingerprints in the car. His DNA isn't present anywhere on the crime scene. There were lots and lots of hairs collected and tested. Not a single hair matches Edward Eight's. There is no indication, no physical or forensic evidence whatsoever that puts Edward Eight's in that trailer. Yet we have this call from Kubia. It just doesn't make sense. So naturally, I was hoping that when I got Kubi on the phone, there would be some indication that she was lying or that she might have misheard Elnora. But as it turns out, that doesn't appear to be the case. Kubi was very, very nice. You could tell that she was nervous to be speaking with me, but she was still willing to do it, and she was very kind and sweet with me on the phone. She told me exactly what it says in her trial testimony. She says that she called Elnora. Elnora didn't sound under distress. She didn't sound upset. She just said, I'm sitting here talking to Edward. And Kubia said that that was a shock to her. Because just like Ed has told us, and Johnny has told us, it would have been really, really, really strange for Edward to have been sitting there talking to Elnora at 10 o'clock at night. Or really at all. Kubia testified, and she told me on the phone, that the only time she knew that Edward would ever be down at Elnora's house was if he was doing yard work or washing her car or doing some work around the house. There was a big age difference, and Elnora wasn't Ed's friend. She was Ed's grandmother's friend. So Kubia tells me that the reason it stuck out in her mind was that it would have been so odd for Ed to be there that time of night. 
And another idea that I've thought about several times is maybe Kubia had a grudge against Ed. Maybe she was purposely trying to pin it on him for some reason. But I really didn't get that impression from her when I talked to her on the phone. She made it a point to tell me several times that she's not saying that Edward did it. She doesn't want to implicate Ed in the crime. The only thing that she knows is that Elnora told her that Edward was sitting there. And I asked her, is it possible she could have misheard her? And she said no, because when she told her she's sitting there talking to Edward, she was so shocked by that that she asked Edward who. And she says that Elnora responded, Edward Lewis, you know, Mrs. Dew's grandson. After spending about a half an hour on the phone with Kubia, I definitely didn't get the impression that she was lying to me. I believe that she believes that she's telling the truth. And what I mean by that is, I wonder if there could possibly be some confirmation bias at work here. And that may not be the case. She may have it exactly right. But in her trial testimony, when Dobbs is questioning her on his final redirect, he presented her with the statement that she had written out on the night Elnora's body was found. He had her read it to refresh her memory. And this, by the way, is a document that I still don't have. I've requested it. Hopefully I'll be getting it soon. But Dobbs made a point never to enter it into evidence. So it wasn't in the exhibit box for trial. But he had Kubia look at the statement to refresh her memory. And then he asked her, did you write in your statement the night that Elnora's body was found, when Deputy Shirley Mallard was having you write that statement, did you write that she told you that she was talking to Edward Eights? And she says yes. So again, I haven't laid my eyes on this document, but from the context of that testimony, it reads as though on that night, her recollection of the events from the night before were that Elnora had told her that she was sitting here talking to Edward Eights. But then by trial, it became Edward, Edward who, Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. And when I spoke with Johnny Pryor, she recounted the story to the same effect. When I asked her why she thought Edward was guilty, she told me that she didn't really know. She didn't know what happened at the trial. But she knows what she read in the paper, that they found the, as she put it, doo-doo on Edward's shoe. And she said that Kubia had told her that she had called Elnora, and Elnora had told her that she was sitting there talking to Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. Now, in one capacity, that could be a confirmation that that is what was actually said. But on the other hand, it also means that Kubia and Johnny had spent time talking about this. And this is a perfect recipe for confirmation bias to set in. Our minds have a tendency to fill in the blanks, especially when you're having an ongoing conversation with someone and you're trying to figure out what happened. So if just 24 hours after the phone call happened, her recollection was that Elnora said, I'm talking to Edward Aids, but then after multiple conversations with Johnny, and years go by, that testimony changes to I'm talking to Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. It could possibly be a case of her mind filling in those blanks. And that's what I mean by the fact that I don't believe that Kubi was lying to me. Every indication that I got from her was that she believed what she was telling me. But any way you shake it, whether it's her initial statement or the way she testified at trial or the way she told me on the phone, she is positive that Elnora told her that she was sitting talking to Edward, our Edward, our Ed Eights, on the night that she was killed. So we're left trying to figure out what that means. How does that fit into the story? Ed has said over and over and over again and has maintained for 23 years that he was not in Elnora's trailer that night. And again, there is zero physical evidence indicating that Ed was in the trailer that night. I even talked to Ed on the phone yesterday, 
I told him what Kubi had said, and I told him, Ed, even if you were in the trailer for some other reason, that's not going to hurt your case. That will actually make things easier for us as I'm trying to figure out what exactly happened that night. You can tell me. And Ed told me, Bob, I promise you I'm not going to lie to you. I trust you. I know you're doing everything you can do for me. If I was there that night, I would tell you. But I can't do that because I wasn't there. I asked him if he was absolutely positive, if maybe he stopped in to talk to her for just a minute. And he said no. He said he was not there. He said when he left Johnny's house, he went back up to his house, talked to his brother, had a cigarette with him, and then he took his grandma's car and he left and he went to Monica's apartment. So I'm still left baffled as to why Elnora would tell Kubia that she was sitting there talking to Edward. But as far as I can tell from reading all these documents and talking to all these witnesses, that's absolutely what Elnora told Kubia. A few episodes back, we discussed this briefly. And I said then, there's only a few possibilities of what that could mean. It could mean Kubia is lying. It could mean Kubia misheard her. Or it could mean that Elnora was lying. And at this point, that actually seems like that may be the most probable scenario here. And again, we don't know any of this concretely. I can't tell you this for sure. But I believe Kubia was telling the truth. At least a version of the truth the best she can remember it. And I believe Edward when he says he wasn't there. I don't think it's possible for him to have been in that house, sitting down on her furniture, having a conversation, getting undressed, having sex together, getting into a brutal physical altercation that spanned from one end of the trailer to the other, that eventually led to slitting Elnora's throat and murdering her, and not leave a trace of physical evidence. No hair, no fingerprints, no semen, nothing. I just don't believe that's possible. So if Kubi is telling the truth, and I tend to believe that she is, and Edward's telling the truth, and I also believe that he is, then the only thing that's left is that Elnora wasn't telling the truth when she said that Edward was the one who was sitting there. And I have a working theory as to why she would have done that. But we'll discuss that next week. Now, before we move on from Kubia, I want to finish going through the rest of her testimony and really take a deep look at it, because there's a few pieces of it that are really interesting and may turn out to mean something as we move on with the case. During Kubia's testimony, she states that her and Elnor were very good friends. She says that she'd been over to her house several times, and she even indicated that they speak on the phone every night. When she was asked about making the phone call that night, She said, I called her at night before I went to bed like I always do just to see how she's doing. The way she stated it made it sound like she actually calls her every night to talk on the phone. Kubi and Elnora both actually worked at the same place. They both worked at the UT Health Center. Now, they worked at different buildings, but they worked the same hours at the same company. From the way it sounds, they were about as close as friends could be. Kubia knew who Elnora was dating. She knew what was going on in her life. For example, when questioned about Leonard Mosley, she says that yes, they were dating and they were engaged, but they had been broken up at the time of the murder. She also said that she knew that Leonard Mosley had another woman living with him at that time. She didn't know Angela Walker's name, but she knew there was another woman. She also confirms that during that summer, remember when Francis Johnson is supposed to be in Georgia, and according to his testimony, never came back to Tyler once, not even for a weekend pass, 
that between May and July during the summer of 1993, that Elnor was also dating Frances Johnson. She was also asked if she knew who Lionel Williams was. Now, if you remember, Lionel Williams is the man with the white Corvette. And he's the one that we're not real sure what his relationship with Elnora was. He's referred to as a man with a white Corvette from the Dallas area. Kubi didn't know him as driving a white Corvette or being from the Dallas area, but when she heard the name Lionel Williams, she did know the name, and she knew that Elnora talked to him a lot. But just like everyone else, she doesn't pin down that Elnora was actually in a relationship with Lionel. Now, if you remember back with Francis Johnson's testimony, he testified that Lionel was the reason that he and Elnora broke up, because he had gone to Elnora's trailer and Lionel was there. But in any case, Kubia Jackson knew the inner workings of Elnora's life. They spoke on the phone every night. They worked at the same company. She would go to her house on several occasions. She would see her at Johnny's house on even more occasions. But the one thing that Kubia doesn't know about Elnora, according to her trial testimony, is why she moved to Tyler from the Dallas area. This has been an absolute mystery to me. All these people that were so close to Elnora, Kubia Jackson, her cousin Johnny, her other cousin Leon, that's Johnny's brother, the one that I met when I was in Tyler last time. Remember I told you that Elnora actually used to live with Leon. She was living with him when she moved to Tyler. When she came to Tyler, she didn't have a job. She didn't have a place to stay. That's how she ended up staying in the single white trailer behind Johnny's house. All of these people were close with Elnora. They knew everything else about her life. But none of them know why she moved to Tyler. They don't know why she just picked up and moved down there with no prospects, nowhere to work, nowhere to live. She just left. For starters, that strange behavior for someone to do. Leon said she was living with him. They got along great, and he always had a place for her. But she wanted to get out of the Dallas area, but he doesn't know why. Kubia doesn't know why. Johnny doesn't know why. The only person that's offered me up any explanation whatsoever is Ed's mother. Margie had told me that Elnora had confided in her that she was mixed up in some trouble in Dallas. Sounds like maybe someone she was dating was involved in the drug trade or something along those lines, and that somehow Elnora had gotten caught up in it, and that's why she left the Dallas area. And I haven't reported this since Margie told me that, because I haven't been able to chase any of that down. No one has been able to confirm this to me, so I'm not even reporting it to you as fact. I'm just telling you that that's something that I've been told by Margie Jackson, Ed's mother. And I also noted when I went back and read the interviews that Margie gave to the police, and I'll have that up on the website this week, her interview with Detective Huckel, she's continually telling the police that they need to check into why Elnora left Dallas. She never says why, she just says you need to check into that. And then she keeps saying that they need to check on the guy with the white Corvette. Again, that would be Lionel Williams. Now this could be an absolute red herring as far as why she was murdered, or it could be something significant. Detective Huckel assured Margie in the interview that they had checked into the reason Elnora had left Dallas, and the leads didn't pan out. But I also found it really odd in reading the transcripts how coy everyone was being about it. Margie wouldn't come out and say the reason she left, and even the detectives wouldn't come out and say what it was they had chased down. But it's still something that I'm keeping a pin in, and I'm going to continue to look into further. In a lot of this, I'll be able to get a lot more information once I get the DA's file that I requested a couple months ago. Currently, I'm awaiting for the Attorney General's decision. Smith County has disputed some of the items that I've asked for, 
And by Texas state law, they have 10 days to submit their reason for wanting to exclude certain items to the attorney general's office. And then I believe the attorney general's office has 30 days in order to rule on that. So hopefully once that's over, I'll get the rest of these documents and we'll have a little bit clearer picture. But for now, like I said, the reason Elnora left Dallas for Tyler is something to put a pin in. And we'll be circling back to that at a later date. Another thing that I noticed as I was going through Kubia's testimony is that Ed's attorneys just really shit the bed in this entire case. And even when it comes to Kubia. So there were a couple of issues here. Number one, Shirley Mallard was the deputy, uh, Shirley Long at the time of trial, who took Kubia Jackson's statement. She actually took Kubia's, Mrs. Dew's, Kelvin Aid's, Edward Aid's. She took all of their statements. She testified at trial, but Ed's attorneys never even asked her about Kubia's statement. They didn't ask her what she said, what they questioned her about, how the statement came to be. Kubia is never even mentioned during Shirley Long's testimony. 22 pages of nothing. But from the way I read it, another huge mistake is the angle they took on Kubia. Their entire defense against the Kubia statement is that when Elnora said she was sitting there talking to Edward, that she was actually on the phone to Edward and she had clicked over on call waiting to talk to Kubia. As you read through the transcripts, you'll see they spent a lot of time asking her if she heard a click or if she knows if Elnora has call waiting. Kubia first says she doesn't have call waiting, then she says she doesn't know, but she doesn't think she was on another call because she didn't hear a click. It sounded like a normal phone. It just goes on and on, and it's doing a couple of things. Number one, it's just confusing the jury, or at the very least, muddying the waters. They're spending all this time talking about call waiting, when the reality of it is, Ed never said that he called Elnora. He didn't say that in any of his statements. He doesn't say that now. He tells me that he had even told his attorneys that he didn't call her, but they thought that was the best strategy to handle Kubia. When the reality of it is, even if they could convince the jury that Elnora was on the phone to Edward when that happened, all that would do is prove that Edward was lying, because Edward had never said that he was on the phone to her that night. And the jury did get to hear and read all of Ed's interviews. They got to read his written statements. They know that Ed never claimed to have been on the phone to her. He claimed that he was not even there, that he was at Monica Bush's apartment during that time. In my opinion, what they should have been doing is asking some of the questions that we're going to discuss next week. Now, one thing that I think Ed's attorneys did do right is they did ask Kubia if she had been in the trailer, and she said yes, she had on several occasions. They asked her that if when Elnora told her that, was she whispering? And she said no, she was speaking in a normal voice. And then they asked her, given the size of the trailer and the voice she was speaking, would anyone in that trailer have been able to hear her say, I'm sitting here talking to Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. And Kubia confirms that yes. And I can tell you from personal experience from being in that trailer that it's tiny. And there's nowhere you could be in that trailer where you wouldn't hear someone speaking in a normal tone. Like I mentioned last week, the trailer is much smaller than it appears in the crime scene photos that are on the website. Our eyes tend to play tricks on us when we see a body laying on the floor compared to everything else in the room. And we assume that it's a normal-sized person laying on the floor, which makes the room look bigger. But the reality of it is, that trailer's only about 10 feet wide. If you go back and look at the crime scene photos, and Elnora's body is redacted out, but you can still see the shape of it, and look behind her and look at the size of the dining room chairs, 
and really focus on the comparison of size between the two. And you'll see that Elnora was tiny. Four foot four is a very, very small woman. And that trailer was very, very small. And so I agree with Kubia. Elnora only had two phones. One was in the kitchen, right in the middle of the trailer, and the other one was back in her bedroom. I would assume if she was sitting down talking to someone when she had that conversation, she would have been sitting at the kitchen dining table, right in the middle of the trailer. And you would have been able to hear her in either direction from anywhere in that trailer if she was speaking. And the point Ed's attorneys were making, and they did actually drive this point home, was that if it was Edward sitting in there, and if he was the one that murdered Elnora, he would know that she was talking on the phone and just told someone that he was the one sitting there talking to her at that moment. The point being, it would be possibly the stupidest murder plan on the planet to then turn around and kill her right at that moment, because if it was Ed, it would have had to have been right then. Kubia testified that she made the call between 9.45 and 10.30, and she told me on the phone that she never knew really exactly what time it was. She knew that church got over around 9.30, and she thinks she went to bed somewhere around 10.30, and she went to bed right after the phone call. So she told me it was probably closer to that 10.30 mark, if that was the range of time she had given back at trial. Well, we know, worst case scenario, even with the changing testimony, that the latest that Ed was at Monica's apartment was 11.20. And it's a 20-minute drive, which means he had to leave Elnora's trailer by 11 o'clock. And you're talking about time for her to get naked, for there to be some kind of sexual encounter, the physical attack, slitting her throat. And there's some more information about the crime scene we're going to discuss here either next week or the week after that indicates that there was even more cover-up besides nailing the towel up to the window, moving the car, all of these things, all would have had to happen in a half-hour period, 30 minutes maximum. So again, the point that Ed's attorneys were making was that if the state's theory of Ed being the one that killed Elnora, he would have been sitting there talking to her, listening to her tell someone that he's sitting there talking to her, and then immediately moved into whatever happened, whatever motive came up with, which again, they never presented a motive at trial, and killed her and got out of there all in a 30-minute time frame, knowing that someone knows that he was there during that time frame. And there's another lead that I picked up from Kubia's testimony, along with some others' testimony, that I'm still trying to trace down. And that's the fact that if you remember, Leonard Mosley had told Tim Lowndes, the private investigator with ISIS, that he believed that there's no way it could have been Edward who killed Elnora because he knows that around 11 o'clock that Elnora had a phone conversation with her daughter-in-law or her future daughter-in-law. And during Kubia's testimony, Ed's attorneys asked her if she was aware of the relationship that Elnora had with her son's fiancé. Kubia said that they had a good relationship. Ed's attorneys asked if Elnora ever spoke with the fiancé on the phone. Kubia said yes, occasionally she did. So they were trying to lead the jury down that path that maybe that phone call did happen. Maybe she did talk to her son's fiancé at 11 o'clock the night of the murder. Well, in all the documents that I have, I have subpoenas for Elnora's son's phone records, but I don't have the phone records anywhere. I'm assuming that those subpoenas were answered and that they got the phone records, but they weren't in the discovery file, they weren't presented at trial, they weren't entered into evidence, and neither her son or her daughter or her daughter-in-law ever testified at trial. 
And I've been trying like hell to track down Elnora's children, and it's been really, really difficult. I still haven't got there yet. Johnny's trying to help, but I haven't been able to find them. But my gut tells me, and common sense tells me, that if those phone records didn't show a call either to or from Elnora Griffin on the night of her murder, that the prosecution would have put them in discovery and they would have presented them at trial so the jury wouldn't ever have to consider the fact that maybe that phone call was made at 11 o'clock. Because Tim Lowndes did testify to that fact. And Dobbs never contradicted it by showing the phone records and showing that the phone call didn't happen. So like I said, both my gut and common sense tells me there's a really good chance that that phone call did happen. For the last segment today, I want to take a few minutes and talk about answering machines. So getting back to Kubia's testimony, as she testified, she walked through the process of calling Elnora on the night she was murdered, all the way up till she arrived on the crime scene the night her body was found. She said that Elnora had told her she would call her back when she was done sitting there talking to Edward, and she went to bed and Elnora never called back. She said then the next morning she went to work, and she decided to call Elnora at her office. She knew Elnora had plans to go out of town that weekend, so she wanted to catch up with her before she left. She said that she called her office and they told her that Elnora hadn't come in that day. And then she started to get worried. Said next she called Johnny. Now Johnny told me that Kubi had tried calling Elnora at home first and then called her. But the trial transcripts don't indicate that. But Kubia says that she called Johnny and left her a message saying she was worried about Elnora. Now the timing of all this, remember Johnny Pryor worked the night shift, so she was asleep during the day. And I believe Johnny had told me that Kubi had actually left two messages on her machine. Later that day, Johnny woke up, she heard the messages, and then she said she called Elnora and there was no answer. Now, Johnny testified that when she tried to call Elnora, there was no answer. She was asked if there was an answering machine, and Johnny said that Elnora did have an answering machine, but maybe she didn't have it turned on. Now, I don't know what Johnny said in her statement back then, because I haven't seen that document yet either, but that was a recollection five years later at trial, that there was no answer on the answering machine. But I'm not so sure that Johnny was remembering this correctly. About a month ago, when I started wondering about this, I requested a copy of the answering machine tape. I remember from way back three months ago, when I was going through the exhibit box, that there was an evidence envelope in that box that was marked answering machine tape. When I got the copy of the answering machine tape, something seemed very, very odd about it. It was apparently a 90-minute tape, and on the tape there's only a couple of messages. And they're spaced out way apart on the tape. There's a message, and then there's like a 20-minute gap. And then there's another couple of messages, and then another big gap, and then another couple of messages. Now, the way these old tape answering machines worked is they only recorded when someone called. After a certain number of rings, when no one answers, the machine would pick up, play the greeting. Then it would start recording, play a tone. Then it would start recording. You'd hear a beep. And then it would record whatever you're saying until you hung up, and then it would stop. And it would stay in that position until the next call came in. Where again, if you were listening to the tape after the fact, you would hear the beep and the next message. When they hang up, it stops. So on and so forth. So an answering machine tape should be steady recording. There shouldn't be long gaps between messages. 
So this was my first indication that something might be a little bit hinky about this answering machine tape. It doesn't make sense that there's these long gaps between the messages. I want to play for you right now a series of messages that I believe were probably from the day after Elnora was killed. I say this because they're the last messages on the tape. And you'll hear that someone or several people were trying to get a hold of her, but hung up on the machine. So listen to this short recording. So what you hear there are several calls where people hung up before they left a message. You hear the beep and a dial tone. There's a couple of things that are interesting about that. Number one, it indicates that several people were trying to call her and weren't leaving messages. And number two, it shows you how the answering machine tape should sound. There's no editing done to that at all. That's exactly how it was on the tape. You hear the message. There's exactly a half a second delay and then the next message, and then exactly a half a second delay, and then the next message, and so on and so forth, until you heard the final message in that round. That is how the entire tape should sound. There should be no gaps. Now this next message that I'm about to play for you is the reason why I believe that Elnora's answering machine was on the day after she was killed. Listen to this message from the machine. Now, I know that's hard to hear. It's a little muffled and she's talking fast, so I've transcribed it. That message says, Hello, Elnora. It's me just calling to see if you've left for the office. I'm at the office now. This is Arlene. Bye. Now, we don't have any way of knowing for sure that that message came in the day after Elnora was murdered. But the context of the message is someone from her office calling her to ask if she's left for the office yet. Now, that could just be someone calling to ask if she could stop and get something on the way. Or it could be the fact that she didn't show up for work and they were calling wondering if she was coming in. But from the sound of it, it sounds as though they must work the same shift. She says, I'm just calling to see if you've left for the office. I'm at the office now, indicating that she's already there and Elnora's not, and she's supposed to be. But all of this is interesting, and it's a nice thing to speculate on, but none of these are the most disturbing thing that I found on that answering machine tape. There's another short segment of messages on that machine. They're back-to-back with a half a second space between each message like there should be, and the second call is from none other than Leonard Mosley. Let me go ahead and play you this segment of messages. I just want to know where everybody is. Bye-bye. Hello? This is Leonard. I'm just calling to see how you're doing. But you're not at home. So I can't talk to you. I'll talk to you later. Now, 
Now, that one was a little easier to hear, but let me just repeat what Leonard said in that message. Hello, this is Leonard. I'm just calling to see how you're doing, but you're not home, so I can't talk to you. I'll talk to you later. So what's the big deal? It's just her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend leaving her a message. Well, there really isn't a big deal with that. The problem comes in when we go back and review Jason Waller's testimony. Let me read you the exchange of Ed's attorney, Tom McLean, questioning Jason Waller. Question. Did you have a chance to hear that tape that was in that answering machine? Waller's answer. Yes, sir. But when I listened to it, I couldn't tell you. I can't recall exactly what day I listened to it. Question. You couldn't make out a conversation in there where Leonard Mosley had made a phone call to the late victim where he said he'd be over there that night? Waller's answer. There was a phone call from Mr. Mosley, and he did make mention of coming over there sometime. Doesn't say when, I believe. So what's the problem? Remember at the beginning of the episode, I told you that I think that Edward had his life snatched away from him, first in part to sloppy police work, or lazy police work. These detectives never looked anywhere besides Edward Ates. They had a lead, he was a poor black guy, they went for it, and never looked back. But as I said, things got worse when their case landed in a corrupt prosecutor's office. So there's Waller sitting on the stand, his reports in front of him to reference. He says that Leonard Mosley left a message on the answering machine, and he said that he was going to come over there. Let me read you his quote again. Quote from Jason Waller. There was a phone call from Mr. Mosley, and he did make mention of coming over there sometime. The problem is that there is no message from Leonard Mosley on that answering machine saying that he's coming over there. It's not there. So how could that be? Why would the detective say something that helps the defense's case? They've been trying throughout this whole trial to put Leonard Mosley in that trailer that night, and he just testified that Mosley had left a message on the answer machine saying he was coming over. Yet that message is not on the tape. So then I went back and looked at the tape again, and remember I told you there were all of these long gaps in the tape that shouldn't be there. So my thought was, could it be possible that after all of the evidence in the entire case was given to the prosecutors, turned over to David Dobbs specifically, could it be possible that they would take that tape out of the evidence envelope and erase that message off the tape? That just seems like too much. I don't know why I continue to be surprised by the things that the Smith County DA's office has done, but I just thought, no, this is too far. They couldn't possibly have done that. And then I remembered, way back in February, when I first got the opportunity to look at that exhibit box and go through the exhibits, I took photos of all of the exhibits that were in the box, the concern being that maybe some of these items would disappear later down the line. So it was a perfect opportunity. I had one of the clerks sitting right there watching everything I was doing, and I photographed and documented everything that was in that box. Every photograph, every piece of evidence. There's lots of evidence bags in that box of exhibits. And every piece of evidence, every evidence baggie, every envelope, has a seal on it. The seals are what the police put on the boxes to maintain the chain of custody. When the evidence is collected, the officer that collects it puts a piece of evidence tape over the bag or over the envelope or whatever it's contained in, they initial it and date it. Then, if anybody else breaks that seal, they have to log who they were, initial it, and date when they broke the seal and opened it, and then when they're done doing whatever they have to do with the evidence, 
They put it back into the baggie or back into the envelope, and they reseal it, and they reinitial it with a new date. That way you can track who opened the evidence bags and who resealed them, when and why that happened. That's how you maintain the chain of evidence. And you see that in all of these baggies and envelopes. You can see the scraping from the bottom of Ed's shoe. There was an evidence tape put over it to seal it, initialed by Dale Huckel and dated July 23rd, 1993. And then you can see where the seal was broken. It was initialed by somebody in the FBI. That's who did the testing on that. And then a new evidence seal with the FBI logo on it was put back over it in a new initial and a new date on it. But there was one item in that box that had the evidence seal broken with no initials on it. The envelope that contained the answering machine tape had a red piece of evidence tape put across it, dated July 23, 1993, initialed by Jason Waller. And that evidence tape is sliced open and the envelope was open. And there's no initials as to who opened it, who broke the seal, and it was never resealed and initialed again. Someone broke the chain of custody with this answering machine tape. Someone broke that seal, removed the tape, did not follow procedures and document or log who they were or why they were opening it. And now we have a tape that has large segments of it that are missing. And I have a pretty good suspicion of who would have done it. Jason Waller obviously didn't know that that message had been removed from that tape. Otherwise, he wouldn't have testified as such. David Dobbs never followed up on it, and he never played the message at trial. Because he knew once Waller said that message was there that he was fucked. He couldn't play the tape without the message after his detective just got on the stand and said the message was there. This is what I mean by the case gets a thousand times worse once it lands in that prosecutor's office. They will stop at nothing to get their conviction at all costs. Any piece of evidence that hurts their case disappears, is ordered to be destroyed illegally. Evidence seals are broken. Things are deleted off of tapes. David Dobbs will do whatever he has to do to put another notch in his bedpost, another conviction. And he's been able to do it for all these years because nobody's watching. Nobody's paying attention. The media protects him. The judges protect him. The current district attorney protects him. He works the legal community of Tyler, Texas like a politician. In Ed's case, the defense attorneys that were working against him were former co-workers of his and friends of his. The defense investigators were friends of his. Everybody has David Dobbs back. He promises deals, he greases palms, he's shaking hands and kissing babies. And he's enjoyed a wonderful life while all of these men and women pay for his sins. But I promise that I will not stop until I have uncovered every lie, every bit of manipulated testimony, every piece of manipulated evidence and fabricated evidence. I will keep digging and digging and digging with every case that comes my way, and I have started getting flooded with cases from Smith County. People are finally hearing about what we're doing. They're finally speaking out. You may have gotten your buddies in the DA's office to cover your ass from public humiliation in the Carrie Max Cook case, but from what I'm seeing, there's hundreds more where that came from. And it's finally time to pay the piper.
Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Please do me a favor and go onto iTunes and buy a track or the album or whatever you can do to help support Johnny from Truth and Justice, the music soundtrack. Again, as I tell you every week, all the proceeds for that go directly to Johnny Rose. He's put in a lot of time and work to create all the music for the show, and I want to see him benefit from that. So if you like the music, please go onto iTunes and buy that. I also want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thanks to today's sponsors, Squarespace, and a big thanks to 4Athletics. These are guys that wanted to sponsor the show so that they could help out in funding everything that we're doing here. And they have a great product. So make sure you go to 4Athletics.com, use the promo code TRUTH to get 15% off, and check out their athletic apparel. And thanks again to all of you for all of your continued support and engagement. As all these emails are flooding in, I'm seeing we've got a long road to hoe in Smith County. And I want to thank you all for coming along this ride with me and helping every step along the way. Keep sending me in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. If you have a new case, again, send that into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can follow the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. If you like the show, go into iTunes and leave a review that helps us become more visible in the iTunes charts and gets more people involved in this movement. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Justice.